Good afternoon. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Sarah Good. Uh, she is a researcher, a sociologist and a researcher into matters relating to adult sexual attraction to children. Uh, this is an area which is very difficult, very sensitive, but very vital. Uh, Sarah wrote to us uh, uh, some time ago a letter that's been published in the letters page of the, of the UK column website. Her letter concluded with some predictions. She said, I predict the next step will be some engineered form of children demand the right to be sexually exploited by whosoever they choose, including adults. She also she wrote, I also predict some human rights lawyer will get involved um, and uh, subsequently seek to redefine paedophilia as a sexual orientation. Uh, and she concluded, I see a horrifying return of the 1970s push to normalise child sexual abuse. Um, so these are concerns which I share. These are concerns which many at the UK column share. We've seen uh, a situation where a little bit of information came out about the vast scale of child sexual abuse, including by the very highest echelons of society, by those in government, by those at the head of the judiciary, um, by senior police officers, by senior people in social work and teaching professions and many others. Um, and just enough came out that there was a genuine reaction amongst the ordinary British people that was so heartfelt, it actually threatened the establishment. It threatened to sweep it all away. My personal view is, had enough information come out, had we really understood what had been done by the people who rule over us to our children, the reaction by the British people would be to say, we refuse utterly to have these people rule over us anymore. They would have lost all legitimacy and the institutions that we have grown up with would have all been swept away. And I think the establishment saw this too. Uh, I saw in them, and I discussed this with one or two senior politicians, I saw in them fear of the public reaction. I saw in them a desperation to get things quietened down and to make the problem recede into the background. And v via the various inquiries they've held, this has unfortunately been successful in a large degree. And the the concentration on the issue has lessened enormously. And I looked at this reaction and I thought, well, look, the next time, they were frightened. They were so close to getting really fully exposed here. This frightened these people. Next time, it won't be illegal. Right? They're going to try and move the goalposts. They're going to try and change society to make this permissible. So the next thing we should be looking for is an attack on childhood an attack on the protection we offer children. So it was striking when uh, uh, Dr. Good wrote to us in exactly those terms and coming from a research background of, of, of deep study into the issues involved. And for that reason, I'm very delighted to welcome Dr. Good here today. Uh, Sarah, uh, welcome and could you perhaps start with uh, giving us some of your background and uh, and research uh, history 
that uh, has given you an insight into these topic areas. Yeah, sure. And thank you very much for inviting me on, David. Um, so my background is um, I am a paediatric occupational therapist um, and then I moved over into academia. Um, so I did a first degree uh, and a master's in uh, healthcare research and went on to do a PhD uh, that was actually on um, the everyday experiences of drug and alcohol dependent mothers. So that helped me to think about issues related to um, highly stigmatized identities, um, very hidden identities, and how do people manage an identity which um, which is basically telling them that they are a terrible person and they're hurting children. So, so when I was researching, for example, drug-using mothers uh, who had been injecting heroin while they were pregnant and so on, how do those women live with themselves in a way? That, that, that was part of, of the findings of, of my PhD. So later I went into academia full-time and um, in about 2004, I came across a leaflet by chance uh, from the NSPCC. Uh, it's the uh, green leaflet um, that says um, that uh, paedophiles are, are essentially monsters and we need to be protecting our children from these monsters. And I thought, that doesn't that doesn't really make sense, that doesn't really work. That's a fairy story, because paedophiles are not monsters, they're human beings who are doing terrible things to children, and we don't want them to do those terrible things to children. Um, and so again, what I wanted to do was do some research and try and understand who are these human beings who feel these, uh, sex this sexual attraction towards children, what do they themselves say about who they are and, and, and how do they justify what they want to do? Um, and I found out that basically all the research pretty much that's been done on paedophiles has been done on men who have been incarcerated or who are in treatment. But actually the vast majority of people who sexually abuse uh, children or who, or who are tempted to sexually abuse children are out there in the community. Nobody knows about them in the authorities. So I wanted to do uh, a community study. So I did an online community study of, um, it ended up being about 56 uh, uh, people, I think it was uh, 54 men and two women who were all self-defined paedophiles living out in the community, not necessarily known to any authorities. Some of those people had abused children. Some of them probably were abusing children at the time that I was conducting my research. And some of them were very, very clear that they understood that adults having sexual contact with children harms those children and they 
some of them were committed to never acting on their sexual attraction and, and never offending. And that was a new finding that people hadn't come across before, this idea of um, what they call, they define themselves as, as virtuous paedophiles um, or non-offending paedophiles or non-contact paedophiles. Uh, so that was um, quite a revelation. And it was one of the, um, one of the findings that I think was a, was a key finding out of my research. Um, and a couple of books came out of that and a documentary that has been on Netflix, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, called The Paedophile Next Door, directed by Stephen Humphreys. Um, and so it began, it began to open up a, a conversation a bit more about if somebody feels sexually attracted to children, how do we respond as society? What are the messages that we need to give to that person who feels that sexual attraction so that our children stay safe and that person does not act on his attraction? Just before we dive into the, the, the question of how society responds, a mm. um, couple of questions just on what you've said. Um, you, you said that the, the people who define themselves as virtuous paedophiles or non-contact paedophiles, um, to what extent did your research identify the problems <clears throat> relating to pornography? And how were, how were the people you were, you were researching relating to pornographic content and were they differentiating between children hurt by someone else that they would, they would then view for sexual gratification or you know, as, as opposed to children they were directly harming um, themselves? Were they, were they separating the two in any way? I, I, and also maybe if you could just expand a little bit on on the issue of pornography, which is, you know, how, how much of that is driving either the development of the attraction or the, um, in, or the encouragement of it? Right. I think pornography is an absolutely key issue. I mean, I wouldn't call it child pornography. I'd call it obviously a, 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 um, sexual abusive images of children. Um, but, but child pornography is a, a shorthand term sort of thing. Uh, yes. In, in short, my, um, my uh, interview schedule or my questionnaire went into the issue of uh, pornography quite extensively because I wanted to understand um, what the relationship for them was between fantasy and um, acting on their attractions and, and how did they manage those two things. And, so therefore, was images of children part of uh, how they managed to avoid direct hands-on contact with children? Um, one of the things that I was very clear about in the research was that somebody viewing uh, child sexual abuse imagery is itself abusive. So I would not call somebody a virtuous paedophile or a non-offending paedophile if they were making use of those images. Um, 
but you could, I suppose, call them a non-contact paedophile in that sense. So one of the interesting comments, in fact, that a paedophile said to me was that if you, and this was, this was not a virtuous paedophile, this was somebody who saw no problems with having sexual contact with children. And he said to me that it's, if, if, you, if you're going to, if you have a choice between sexually abusing a child or viewing illegal images, then actually it's safer to sexually abuse a child directly because you are less likely to be caught. There is less evidence. So in a, so in a sense, that's almost like a perverse incentive. Um, which, you know, certainly hadn't occurred to me before. And the other things, I mean, they talked a lot about what child sexual abuse images meant to them. And for some of them, they had the belief that what they were looking at was happy children who had voluntarily engaged in consensual acts. Um, so they, they had that kind of delusion, which I think also to some extent is true for adult men looking at images of adult women and thinking, you know, that's in a, in a free context where that woman might have freely chosen that rather than that, that you know, she, she, she's doing it under duress. So, um, but, but so some of them had that. Some of them very, very clearly said, no, the children look distressed. Um, it's, you know, I find it unbearable to look at because I can see that those children are unhappy and that they've been harmed. And, you know, so I, you know, I totally do not. So there was a whole range, essentially, of attitudes uh, towards towards using those images. I mean, the, I mean, there is no sense in which somebody simply is a paedophile and that's their identity any more than there's a sense in which somebody is an ordinary heterosexual man or a homosexual man or whatever and that's their identity kind of thing. So um, there were men who I spoke to who were very, sort of romantic about little girls. And they talked to me about, you know, fairy dust and pink and, and wings, you know, fairy wings and, and, and all of these sorts of um, notions of girlhood, which they had in a sense almost fetishized. Um, they were, I mean, Alice in Wonderland is a very big figure in the so-called girl lover community. So they will call themselves, they'll describe themselves as Alice lovers, for example. That's like a code word. And obviously you've also got Lolita, so they'll call themselves uh, lolly lovers, for example, Lolita lovers. Um, and then you've got the men who are primarily sexually attracted to boys. Um, and they, um, they talked less, I think, about sexual imagery 
they, I mean, both boy, girl lovers and boy lovers, to use their terminology, um, would talk about, um, on online forums, um, they would be talking about what they called girl moments or boy moments. So they would be describing to the other people on the forum, you know, how they had just glimpsed a, a young child, say, in a shopping centre or something like that, and then built up an entire fantasy around that particular image of that child. Um, and they also talked about children that they knew in real life that they would then have sexual fantasies about. Um, so it wasn't a straightforward thing of, are they using child child pornography or, or, or sexual abuse images. And some of them made a distinction between fantasizing only about children that they knew or fantasizing only about children that they didn't know, which for some of them was a way of keeping the children that they knew safe. Um, so there, there were a whole range of different ways that they, that they chose to to deal with this issue. Just before we move on to the next section here, the, the fantasy world, you mentioned mm. the word fantasy several times there. Yeah. Is occupying this fantasy world a, a means by which this attraction grows? Um, the the, the a, a kind of parallel in the heterosexual world would be uh, where where God says you you don't even you don't lust after another woman because if you lust after after you've you've committed adultery in your heart, so it's very clear that the the, the where the line is drawn is before any fantasy any imagined before the, the thoughts start to go to what the Bible would, would clearly call sin. And so before the actions are controlled, the thoughts are controlled. Are, are, are you seeing a group here where the faith is given full reign and is actually propelling, um, you know, the attraction? Is it, uh, and, and if so, did, do any of, did, did any of the people you were talking to realise that this fantasy life was, was itself part of their problem? Yes. So I can think of some examples, um, definitely, of people who were very, very clear that if they indulged their fantasies, they were going to end up in a place they really did not want to end up in. So they some 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 of the men in particular that i spoke to were very i mean it was a constant fight for them it was a constant battle and it was a battle that felt to them very lonely um very isolating i mean so for example one of the men that i had sent the questionnaire to and at the bottom of the questionnaire, it said, is there anything else that I should have asked you? Basically, it was an open, free text question. And this person wrote back and said, basically, you should have asked us about how many times we've attempted suicide. So I 
so I wrote back and I said, can you tell me more? And he explained in detail about what life had been like for him as a teenage boy, as he slowly became aware, first that he was attracted to other boys, so he had to kind of get used to the idea that he was gay in a culture that wasn't very comfortable with men being gay. So he, he had to kind of deal with that. And then as his teenage years went on, he began to realize that the, 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 the people that he was sexually attracted to were not getting older as he was getting older. They were still stuck at about, uh, say, 11, 10, 11, 12. And so as the years went on, he began to realize, hold on a minute, you know, this is not, this is not right. And when he tried to understand what this meant, all he could find, for example, were reports in, say, the Sun newspaper at that time, News of the World and so on, talking about evil paedophiles and sick pervs and, you know, monsters and so on. And he began to realize, wait a minute, that's me. I am a paedophile. I am the people that they're talking about that they hate and wish were dead. And I am going to, they are telling me that I am inevitably going to go on and at some point I am going to rape children. And absolutely, I do not want to do that. I want to keep children safe. Therefore, I had better kill myself. And he worked out the best method to do that. He decided he would have a bath and, and slit his wrists in the bath. And he'd got it all worked out. And he said he sat on the edge of the bathtub with the razor. And he was about, at this point, I don't know, 17, 18. And he could not bring himself to do it. But he still could not tell anybody or ask anybody for help. And he said that he managed to get himself through that phase of his life. Um, and I think probably I was the first person in a way that he disclosed to, although obviously that was anonymous that he disclosed to me. But he was absolutely sure that he was, n you know, he was determined not to offend against children and that he now realized that he actually had options, that he was a moral agent, that it was not inevitable, and that he, just like any other human being, was somebody who was in control of his sexual urges and he could manage his sexual urges. So getting back to your point about fantasy, he was very, very careful not to go down that route. Now, a lot of the other people that I spoke to were not. Um, they were not coming from your framework, which is a very moral framework. They were coming from a much more kind of everyday framework that we have in this culture, which is very much about um, if it feels good, do it. 
and that sex is something that everybody ought to be participating in, etc. So there are no role models or almost no role models, now, even now, of um, non-offending paedophiles. So th there, are, there are very few kind of examples of that. So, for example, another person that I spoke to, he had started off um, looking at online pornography and he started to use online pornography more and more and more and he got um, into more and more extreme uh, examples of pornography and he found himself looking at child pornography even though that isn't where he'd started off at. Um, and he felt so um, distraught about what he was doing that he would even, he, he glued his laptop to the table in the living room so he couldn't carry it through into the bedroom. He took his credit card and he froze it in a block of ice in the freezer so he couldn't go online and buy, um, get, get, on, get access to pornographic sites and so on. Um, but he felt, so out of control, it became such an addiction that he said that actually when the police did knock at the door and he was busted for accessing um, illegal images and he went to prison and he said that actually that was a huge relief because he felt it was the only way that he was going to actually stop. Um, and he's now uh, working with other men to try and help uh, with pornography addiction. Yes, it, it, it's a, it, it, that's a, that alone is a big, uh, a big topic area. We, we, we haven't time to go into it uh, in detail today, but I would just point out in passing that for all there seems to be um, no evidence that violence in video games uh, comes across into uh, everyday life, um, such as the nature of, of sexual desire and se sexual drives within human beings. Um, pornography of this, uh, online very much is proving to be an enormous problem in everyday life um, with horrendous levels of addiction and uh, many other problems coming from it. If, if we could maybe move on now, you, you outlined four approaches that society can take uh, with people who, who have sexual attraction to children. Well, perhaps if you could outline these four approaches and, and, and uh, ex explain to us the, the, the problems or benefits with each. Right, so I've called these four approaches. Um, the first one I've called no big deal. The second one I've called ooh, what fun. The third one I've called monsters over there. And the fourth one I've called all of us. So I think the, the first approach, no big deal, is basically the approach that societies have had historically and that traditional societies all around the world still have. So it's an approach where basically the, uh, the focus is on adult well-being rather than on child well-being. And there is very little empathy for 
for, for, the, for the vulnerability of the child. So historically in this country, the age of consent for girls was around 12. And it was only in 1885 that it got raised uh, to 16 in the Victorian era. And of course, all around the world, there's still a huge range of different ages of consent uh, going right down as low as 10. And in some Muslim countries, there is no, um, uh, there's not necessarily um, a formal age of consent. Uh, and the attitude in many countries has been that a child should, uh, that a girl should uh, get married around the time of her first period. Um, and it, it, uh, some people have said to me that the, um, the ideal is if the girl has her first period in her husband's house rather than in her father's house. So that kind of traditional approach, I think, is something that we are still, I mean, we may think that we're, we're a, a very long way from that now, you know, and that that kind of attitude has gone. But actually, I think in a lot of ways, it still underpins a lot of attitudes that we have, both about girls, being sexually abused by men and also boys being sexually abused by adult men as well. And, and um, you can think about, for example, boys being um, sexually abused, for example, in public schools and so on. You know, so, so as you were saying in your introduction, we know that there's a huge amount of child sexual abuse that occurs in our society and, of course, in other societies around the world as well. So that is kind of the main framework, I would say, in which we are still struggling to engage with child sexual abuse. And the, the second approach, in a way, goes along with that, this idea of what I've called, ooh, what fun, which is kind of, I was astonished, I'll tell you this, when I started doing my research in an academic environment, I was really surprised by the number of fellow academics who kind of thought that my topic was titillating. They didn't see it from the perspective of child protection they saw it again from an adult perspective with the focus on adult pleasure. And again, with little to no empathy towards children. So that attitude has its roots, uh, well, I would say again, a long way back in society. And when we can go back for example, to the 1940s with Alfred Kinsey and the Kinsey reports. But I mean, it, he didn't come up with that attitude. He certainly popularized the attitude that children are sexual from birth and that uh, children can have 
orgasms and that you are essentially doing them a favor if you teach them how to have orgasms from an early age. Uh, one of Kinsey's main research colleagues, um, well, all four of his main research colleagues, but certainly a, a chap called uh, Wardle Pomeroy, was interviewed and said quite explicitly that little girls should be taught to have orgasms from about the age of three. So, so we, we are dealing with quite a, an embedded framework within academia. Within academia, Kinsey still has um, a high standing, is well regarded. Is that, is that, does that remain the, the, the case? Yes, it does, astonishingly enough. Um, I mean, I, I know that, that you are very aware of, uh, the, in the Kinsey Report, uh, Sexual Behaviour in the Human Male, which was published in 1948, in Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is called Early Sexual Growth and Development. And in that chapter, there's, there's a whole bunch of tables, but there's one table in particular, which is famous, called Table 34, which lists uh, a number of children and giving how long it took them to, to, to have orgasms, how many orgasms they had in a certain amount of time and so forth. And Kinsey was asked later, or the Kinsey Institute was asked later, how did Kinsey and his uh, researchers come by those um, come by that data, and they said, "Oh, it was it was it was one one paedophile," and we knew that he was going to be sexually abusing, and he was sexually abusing hundreds of children, and and we we gave him a stopwatch. And in fact, there were several paedophiles, and we gave them stopwatches when when we found out that they were sexually abusing children. We gave them stopwatches, and we we collected that data, and that was the data that we have on child sexuality. Well, for a start, it's not child sexuality, that is <laughs> adult sexual abuse of children. It's got, it says nothing about child sexuality. But in fact, and again, I, I go through it in my books, I mean, I've got a, a, a whole chapter on it, um, that it seems from what Kinsey said and from what all his colleagues said and so forth, I mean, that a lot of that data was... Um, you know, directly uh, obtained by people either very close to Kinsey and his research team or actually by the research team themselves. Um, and then that data has then subsequently been used. For example, there's a sociologist called Floyd Martinson in the 1980s who has published a number of books on so-called child, child and infant sexuality. Um, and uh, the reason why Floyd Martinson is, is quite important is that his work has fed into an organisation called um, SECUS, uh, which has, and I can't remember what SECUS stands for at the moment, um, but SECUS um, has then fed into the, um, the uh, so-called comprehensive sex education, which is being rolled out 
for example, in Wales at the moment. The other thing I was going to say about that was it's, it's not just in academia that you get these approaches because that kind of attitude has then spread out from academia into uh, legislation, into the justice system, into education, into social services and so forth. So um, it's, it's and, and into medical and healthcare and so on, it's, it's not just a, a little sort of ivory tower backwater, if you like, it's, it's actually quite a powerful approach still to thinking about children and child protection. A couple of quick comments before we go on. Yeah. The, the protections um, brought in in Victorian times, essentially by way of, of, of public response to protect particularly girls from exploitation, from sexual exploitation, um, prompted by a few particularly harrowing cases which were reported in the press, mm. um, are kind of being rolled back because we've got now in Scotland the functional age of consent where it's a young person, not exactly precisely defined, and another young person is is 13. Right? There's not really anything happening if they're 13 or older. Uh, so it's, it's rolled back from 16. Um, and uh, there is this, within academia, we, we're seeing academics in Scotland saying such things as the very concept of childhood is unfair and needs to be, needs to be eliminated and children need to be treated exactly the same as adults and should have all the same rights. And then when questioned, well, does that, does that extend to um, uh, sexual interaction with others? Um, the response of these academics is, oh, well, we haven't, we haven't really thought about that, which doesn't strike me as particularly believable. Um, so there is certainly a, a pushback against Vict the standards the Victorians held, which are being, being viewed as old-fashioned, prudish, and all the rest of it, um, and an erosion of the protections that we'd built up around children, and... Um, a tendency towards these the first two of these cases that you've you've outlined. So we're heading more in that direction rather than away from it. I think um, to move on, I, the third item you said, the third approach was is the monsters over there approach. Uh, could could you ex explain what you mean by that? So when we, so what we've got is we've got the either the no big deal or the kind of ooh what fun which I think feeds into things like you, that you were mentioning at, again at the beginning, the elite paedophilia and so on, and, the, and those, um, and, and the novel Lolita, and we can think about what goes on in, in Hollywood, uh, so forth, and, and again and again we get um, people um, disclosing about having been sexually abused uh, as as young people in in Hollywood, and so on, and it and it comes into the media, and it goes out again, and we forget about it. it comes back in, it goes out again, as we and we forget about it. And then, the monsters over there model is the one that kind of set me off on this whole journey back in two thousand and four, with that NSPCC leaflet that said, you know, um, I can it's it's here actually. Scarred for life by child abuse, paedophile groomed boy 
14 for sex ring, Britain's worst paedophile. The more of them there are, the more we need you. And it's an approach that seems to me to be both, um, well, it's essentially pandering to adult concerns and not actually effectively keeping children safe. So, for example, from a charity perspective, they will say, essentially, give us your money and we will deal with those paedophiles over there. And all you have to do is donate money. You don't have to do anything else. So charity is basically saying, give us your money, we'll take responsibility. You don't have to take responsibility, we'll deal with it. And these kind of very bureaucratic uh, methods like vetting and barring, uh, putting people on the sex offender register uh, and so on. Um, and the, what some people have, have referred to almost as a, as a child abuse industry. So there's almost, again, a perverse incentive not to reduce the numbers of children being sexually offended against because it's making some people a very good living. And I think what it's doing is it's pretending to us that paedophiles are other than us. They are not us. And why that's dangerous is because if your father is doing something to you that you don't like, or you, or, you, or you suspect that your husband might be doing something that you're worried about, or, or your neighbor, or whoever it is. But you've got in your head this idea that pedophiles are monsters. Well, but that person isn't a monster. Therefore, they can't be a pedophile. So it silences people from being able to speak out. And it stops people from being able to have that recognition that what is going on, that I can name what is going on, and I can say, yes, this bad thing is happening, and I don't like it, and I want it to stop. But if you've said that paedophiles are monsters, then it's like, oh, but I, you know, I can't, I can't, it becomes almost like a nuclear option. I can't then say it, it's too bad to say. And I think we also had that when we had the stranger danger, um, which again kind of redirected the attention of children and adults to that stranger over there, instead of to perhaps what was actually happening in that child's own life in their own home. And of course, one of the stranger danger um, campaigns was fronted by Jimmy Savile. In this area, I mean, I, I do I do some work with an organisation called the Fresh Start Foundation, and they're dealing with mm. um, hel helping the, the the survivors of child sexual abuse and um, and their families. Um, one case that we we've recently um, been of some assistance to to the lady, um, she was abused as a child, and decades pass. Right, until the the psychological effects of that become so debilitating that, that it's having such an effect on her life that she's forced to address it. Um, 
So she very bravely started to do this. Now, she found that within her family, um, and it, it had been a grandfather that, that was abusing, and it was, it may have extended out with the family, but this was within the family. Within the family, there were many people, her sisters, her aunts, that knew this was going on, but wouldn't say, and her mother, um, because they wouldn't, quote, give up my dad. They wouldn't, they wouldn't say the truth because of the implication for someone else which they were still close to despite what he'd done. And although this man had been abusing, it would appear, um, every young female in the entire extended family, as far as we can tell, um, and quite possibly beyond, uh, quite possibly wider than that, um, it took uh, decades during which point the, 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 the family and the female part of the family who had themselves been abused were actually covering for him mm. um, until eventually the, the, the courage of this one individual who, who, who went to the police and started an investigation going actually brought an end to that and there was a recognition more widely within the family of what had gone on. But this, this initial reaction which was Wait, yeah, you can. I'm, I'm, I would rather pretend this was this reality wasn't real, mm -hmm. because there are other implications which are too shocking. So I can't face that. So I'm going to essentially cover up. You know, the 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 nature, the monsters over there narrative, mm -hmm. isn't giving um, a ready access to either justice or prevention or safeguarding. It, it, so I, I understand what you're saying about that. Huh. Um, th no, does that bring silencing. us to the fourth? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, do, do one. Oh, well, I mean, all I was going to say was it's a very powerful, actually, it's a very powerful mechanism of silencing and disempowering us. Disempowering the child and disempowering, disempower, disempowering all of us in our communities and in our society. So that's why I think we need to be moving on to the fourth approach, which I've called all of us, even though the, four, the, the, the fourth approach ha carries very much its own risks as well. So none of these are straightforward, but I would say that the all of us approach is the only approach which actually it is, is where it's possible for us to have the focus on the child rather than on the adult and adult well-being. I mean, the, the monsters over there approach really focuses on adults because it just, the, the idea is it makes us all as adults feel better. You know, that we don't have to think about this too deeply, we don't have to worry about it. And if we say, no, this is actually something that involves every single one of us in society, that all of us need to be involved in keeping children safe. And 
the all of us approach is far more realistic in that it's thinking about sexuality and in particular male sexuality and the idea that there is a some proportion of men who are sexually attracted to children. Now we don't know exactly what proportion, there's some research that's been done, it's very limited. Um, and I did actually um, put together a research proposal where it would be possible to do a large scale anonymous survey, which I think would actually give us a much more realistic idea about who is sexually attracted to children, how many people. Couldn't get the funding for it. But the studies that have been done suggest that somewhere around one in every hundred men to possibly five in every hundred men. No, sorry, one in every 20 men, 5%. Um, may have some level of sexual attraction to children. So if you think of it as a continuum, like a bell curve, where you've got a tail of, and again, I'm talking just about men here, there are some women who are sexually attracted to children, it's a, it's a smaller number, but if you think about it as a, as a bell curve, you've got the tail here where you've got somewhere around 1%, 2%, possibly 3 uh, the um, American um, Psychological Association, I think it is, says it's 5%, but I'm not sure where they got that figure from, of people who, who have some sexual attraction to children. Then you've got a, a bell curve where men can be sexually aroused to children under certain conditions, which explains why you've got child marriage in so many cultures around the world, for example. And then you've got a tail at the other end of men who would never be sexually aroused to children. It just is never gonna happen. So I think when we think about it in those terms, and we realize this is an issue that we're always going to have to deal with, it's never going to go away. It seems to be something that's built in and that's why one of the things that I'm most concerned about is the teenage boys who are growing up and realising that they may have this sexual attraction to some degree or another. And what are the messages that we give them? How do we help them to understand you may be sexually attracted to children, but as a society, we absolutely do not want you ever acting on that. And therefore, these are some of the systems and, and methods that we're going to have in place to, to help you never act on that. These issues are becoming ever more problematic because we're seeing in Canada and shortly, it, it seems likely in Scotland, because we've already had the discussions in Parliament. Um, we're, we're in a bizarre situation where someone going to seek assistance because they're unhappy with their sexual orientation and, and, and their sexual urges and they want 
they want to change that and they want counselling or advice or help. That whole process is now being criminalised. It's been labelled conversion therapy. Um, it's been likened unto torture. And um, it's been entirely, it's be, it is the process of being criminalised. Um, so that seems to me to be a big step backwards because if we're talking about um, issues that relate not to the monsters over there, but issue that, issues that relate to the human condition, the failings of the human condition, and the tendency of sexual drives to produce unhappy results, this is something that's more broadly present as a problem in society. And if we're not able to talk about that sensibly, address it, if we're actually going to lock people up for talking about that and addressing it, then we're surely building in more problems to the future. Is that a concern, a valid concern? I think it's a massive concern. And I, one of the very interesting things about that proposed uh, uh, ban on conversion therapy, as you said, I mean, the language is quite bizarre. It's very ironic. So that the therapist who is trying to help the person think about aspects of their sexuality is called in the proposal a perpetrator. And the person going for the therapy is called a victim and a survivor. And I think to have used that language is quite bizarre. So I think, I mean, there are projects, there are a lot of projects that have happened over the years that uh, have attempted to address this issue and to prevent the child sexual abuse before it occurs, which is what all of us want. And you've mentioned one, you've mentioned Fresh Start in Scotland. Uh, and there's several going on at the moment around Europe. So, um, well, the first one I think that I'm aware of uh, was back in the, I think, 70s, 80s, uh, a very, very brave courageous woman called Fran Henry in America who had been sexually abused by her father and who wanted to set up a series of what they have in America town hall meetings where you would have somebody who had been sexually abused, somebody who had perpetrated child sexual abuse but understood the consequences and a therapist. And those three people together would speak in a public setting and would begin that public conversation about what is the meaning of child sexual abuse? How do we deal with it? How do we address it? How, 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 and what do we do with people who have offended against children? And how do we um, both stop them from further abuse and also stop people in the very first stage from, from, from ever abusing? So stop it before it's even started. So she set up this organisation, Stop It Now. 
Um, and in this country, uh, another woman, uh, Juliet Grayson, set up an organization called Stop So, which is uh, Stop uh, Sexual Offending. Um, and in uh, Germany, they set up a, a project called Don't Offend, which is now called Troubled Desire. Um, and there's also uh, a major one, which uh, was one of the ones that uh, the Scottish police got in a bit of trouble with, uh, a major one called 2PS, which is um, Prevent and Protect Through Support, where they were referring to paedophiles as minor attracted persons uh, on their website. They've since taken that down. Um, but all of these um, projects, it seems to me, start off very uh, creatively, very imaginatively. They're about pulling in ordinary people, they're about helping the community take responsibility. And then it seems to me that they become co-opted, they become bureaucratized, um, they, and, and, and it, they become neutralized in a sense. They're no longer doing the things that we wanted them to do. And the child sexual abuse continues. So that's why I say that I don't think, um, I don't think we've reached the point yet of being able to resolve this, this issue. Um, I think that there are so many forces that are kind of pulling us back all the time um, and that are kind of helping to maintain the status quo meaning that children continue to be harmed. Because I forgot uh, yeah. one thing when we were talking about the academic thing. And I just thought your, please, please do. your, your uh, viewers and listeners might be interested because um, it's an organization called IPSI, International Paedophile and Child Emancipation. Um, and they are a very large, well, they, I think that they're perhaps slightly smaller than they used to be, but they were a very large, uh, English language European organization, global organization. They were founded in the, in the 1990s um, and they were running every year, they were running a conference uh, in different uh, countries around Europe uh, with high profile, uh, big name academics from various big uh, sex research journals and so on. Uh, and I was actually invited as when I was doing the research, I was I was invited by um, a group of people who didn't quite understand um, because when I was doing my research, obviously I had to be extremely neutral um, so that people would talk to me. So I was not going in there saying I'm I'm coming at this from a child protection perspective. I was saying I'm I'm coming in to hear people's viewpoints. So they said, well, come to this conference. Um, and you'll meet, you know, basically all the big name academics who are kind of involved in what you might term pro of our research. And unfortunately, my institution, I said to my institution, is it, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and, and they and they refused to let me. So that was a drag because that was a, a, a real serious missed opportunity. But I think it's important for people to be aware that they're, there are a huge number of websites, not just the child pornography websites, which is what people think about, 
But as I said, there's a girl lover, girl lover forums, boy lover forums, um, and and whole academic communities. There's an academic uh, community that you're only allowed to get into by invitation called Sexnet, which is uh, um, a kind of a sexual research group um, where people speak freely, uh, including um, again along the ooh what fun type um, approach. So I just wanted to, to, to sort of mention that because I think that it's really important, you know, that, that a lot of the time that's invisible to ordinary people, that we think that we have, um, that we have basically got this consensus that child sexual abuse is, is not a good thing, but actually there are still many places um, within our society where, where that's not a given at all. And I think that that's yes. why, you know, that feeds into what you were talking about earlier on with the elite abuse and so on. Um, and also, I think it helps us to understand why uh, initiatives that look as though they're actually going to make a difference seem to become co-opted and neutralised by the same organisations over and over again. Yes, the, the, the nature of academic research is one of the most troubling aspects of this because it, it, it's, it's an area which, is, which has gained, not is gaining, has gained the ascendancy uh, in academic life. So it, it, was, it was termed a long march through the institution. So you've got ideas which stem from cultural Marxism, which maybe come out in the late 1960s. So when you start getting critical theory and then that morphs into queer theory, um, which is looking to disassemble, destroy essentially, um, th the basic family structure of society to tear it down by constant criticism and to uh, replace it with uh, very much an anything goes approach. Um, that that is now completely normalised within academia. That is now driving uh, educational innovations in our schools. That's driving things like Drag Queen Story Time that we've reported on. Um, when you go back to the origins of that in the late nineteen sixties and look at the original papers, it's clearly referring. Doesn't use the term paedophilia because it's a scare term. But it's clearly referring from the outset to sexual relationships between adults and children. They're taught the sort of euphemisms they use as is age-separated sexual relationships that society views with horror. Right. Well, what uh, this is this is not a 20-year-old girl marrying a 55-year-old bloke. This is they're talking about um they're talking about child abuse. And it's clear from the onset, from the outset of, of these now accepted academic disciplines, now accepted strands of thought, that part of the agenda is to normalise sexual abuse of children. And these ideas are now embedded in our education departments, our teacher training schools, and in, in, in developing the curriculum for sex ed, something that's very much a hot topic all around the UK as different parts of our society react and say, no, this is grooming children, this is not educating. So 
we see we see the academic failings, the the, the failure, the, the the collapse of academia to these ideas. Um, having now a very strong influence in our broader society. Um, you, we mentioned once or twice the Fresh Start Foundation. Through the work I've done there and, and with also work I've done with UK Column reporting on, on child abuse issues, uh, I've got a couple of things, a couple of ideas I'd just like to share with you and, and get your comments. Um, one was from... Uh, the Fresh Start Foundation. So they, they formed a view that um, essentially whatever children would be, paedophiles would be attracted, and it was a constant risk. So whether it's association football boys clubs or whether it's schools or whether it's um, convalescent homes for kill children or whatever it happens to be, whatever those children, there is an attraction to those who are attracted, who are sexually attracted to children, those who wish to abuse and exploit them. And therefore, there has to be a proactive uh, means of protecting the children. It's not a case of, have you got a previous conviction? Um, it's not a case of prosecuting people after the harm is done, but there has to be a proactive method of sifting out from the general population that you're recruiting from, those who are safe and those who are unsafe to be around children. Um, and and the Fresh Start Foundation, or people within the Fresh Start Foundation, were saying that a, com a combination, combination of polygraph testing and psychological testing is capable of doing this, or doing it at such a high level of accuracy that it would vastly reduce the danger that children are are exposed to. Do you think that's correct? Okay, I'm I'm not sure. Okay, because. Some, so, so when you mentioned polygraph, my immediate thought was some of the people that I interviewed absolutely believe that if they have sexual contact with children, that's good. So they would not see that as abusive. So, for example, if the polygraph was saying, do you want to hurt children or something, you know, then that wouldn't, that wouldn't register because, because they see that as a benefit, as a positive. So that would be one thing. But, but certainly what I, think, what I think we do need to do is we need to be brave enough to have the conversations. And what I argued for in my book and, and in the documentary was if we would be able as a society to get to a point where somebody would be able to say, I feel sexually attracted towards children and the people around them would hold them to account and would make sure, okay, we, we will not put you in a situation where you're alone with children. You know, we will keep an eye on you, we will monitor you, we will challenge you. Because I think the, we have to be realistic. So what, what I think we've already said is there are a 
a certain number of men, and we don't know how many, if we just focus on men for the time being, there's a certain number of men who are sexually attracted to children. And we can't change that, as far as we're aware. Some of those men, because they really enjoy being around children, and that's not necessarily sexual, it might be romantic, it might be affectionate, they might, some of them see themselves as almost parental. So they see themselves as like a big brother or an uncle or something like that. So a number of these men, they certainly will go into organizations where there are children. They will go into teaching, right? They will definitely do that. They will definitely go into uh, working in, in, in children's organizations. So I think an ideal situation would be where we openly acknowledge that and then rather than trying to ex make, rather than trying to exclude people, which I don't think is necessarily realistic, it might be realistic, but I, I'm not sure that it is, or having a witch hunt, which I don't think benefits anybody. I think if we can get to a point where we say to, pe to, 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 to people, we are all moral agents. Each one of us has to make a choice. So even though you are sexually attracted to children, we are going to hold you to standards that we would expect from anybody. We would expect you, you know, not to um, sexually abuse children, essentially. That's one possibility. The other thing that I want to say very clearly, David, is that you've got men who are sexually attracted, if we just stick with men for a minute, we've got men who are sexually attracted to children, and then we've also got men who sexually abuse children. And those two Venn diagram, that Venn diagram, if you like, is an overlapping circle. So there will be some people who are primarily sexually attracted to children who sexually abuse children. There will be some men who are sex primarily sexually attracted to children who do not abuse children. And there will be some men who are not primarily sexually attracted to children. Therefore, they wouldn't be classed as paedophiles. But they can be sexually aroused to children given certain conditions, and they might sexually abuse against children. So it's, it's more complex than just saying, let's find out who the paedophiles are and, and try and exclude them from ever being around children. Because some of those men are going to be fathers anyway, because some men who are primarily sexually attracted to children are also uh, able to be sexually aroused by adult women. So some of them will be fathers, some of them will certainly be, you know, uncles, brothers, cousins, whatever. They will be around children, even if not in an institutional environment. So we want them to be safe in every environment. One of the aspects of the current education system innovations, um, which is, is most concerning, is, is the whole you said there, everyone's a moral agent. Mm. And uh, to a very large degree, 
moral agency is not being discussed. The it, what's being discussed is harm reduction. So if it feels right, do it, but don't get hurt too badly. Do it in a more safe way. Seems to be the message that's coming from the state to the children. And moral codes, moral standards, moral decisions mm. are always couched at, at the very best in terms which are relative or subjective. The, the, the absolute is, is viewed as being unfair, restrictive, uh, it's a form of bigotry, we mustn't do that, we mustn't have absolute values, that's bad. So it's therefore put on to the child, well, you can, you can have a moral code if you wish, um, but there is no moral code. That someone else would have a different moral code, and that's entirely equivalent, that's entirely as good as yours, and you, we can't choose between them. So there doesn't seem to me to be a very clear line there that says that that's giving that's given children as they grow up as they enter this co complex and confusing period called adolescence and they're trying to figure out how the world works and how they work and how they interact with other people and what it is to be a human being um they're not really been given any guidance to any of these answers. They've been left to sort it all out for themselves. And that's just an invitation to exploitation and abuse and grooming and all the rest of it. And to say everyone's a moral agent, whilst it's absolutely true, uh, implies that we can have a mature discussion in, in a society about what that means. And my concern is that's no longer true. Uh, or certainly it's becoming very much under threat. Um, when you said that about the variety of, of the nature of what it is, what, what paedophiles are, um, certainly in the UK column we've, we've, we've seen this, we've reported on these issues for a long time. Um, we, we, one of the cases we were given, and we investigated, um, where someone had approached a family to negotiate a financial contract for access to their disabled son. And one of the things that, that we've had to learn in the UK column is disabled children are at more risk, not less, because they make bad witnesses. And therefore, children who are maybe not able to speak or not able to speak well or not able to stand up in a court of law and actually point out an abuser and be believed, they're actually, they're, they're at greater risk than paedophiles because they are a safer bet. Something you mentioned earlier, that actually abusing a child is safer than, 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 than child pornography for the paedophile because uh, there's, not the, there's not the evidence trail to actually get them convicted. Well, this is the, the end point of that. Um, so we, we started to investigate this particular situation. We discovered, the family didn't know this, we discovered the person involved was, was making this offer who was trying to get access to their son was in fact a Serbian police officer. Still is, as far as I know. And um, we started an open source investigation. Someone sent us a bit of video they'd got off of Facebook. 
um, someone had posted, of a party in a house. And this particular individual was there. And there'd been lots of alcohol and everyone's singing and playing the spoons and it was all very jolly. And the person who owned the house, their little lad, who must have been about, I don't know, two or three, he was very small. He'd been in a bath and he, he came in and he toddled through the, the kitchen where this was being filmed. Um, and he wasn't wearing anything. Now, normally, the normal reaction from a bloke if someone else's child walks through naked is you find someone else to look, right? Because it would just be creepy. And, you know, you're not, there's no particular interest. It's a little child. But you just kind of let the little child toddle around and do his thing and off he goes. So this particular chap um, could not take his eyes from this child. It was the creepiest thing I ever saw. And I, and I knew then that everything this family had been telling us, well, I knew before because everything had checked out, but everything this family had been telling us had been true because this, this, this chap's reaction to this very young child mm -hmm. was, was manifestly not normal. It was, it, was, it was very strikingly different and it was creepy is the word. It, it just did not react as, as, a, as a fully grown adult man would normally. It, it was something very off about that. But we're well aware that in other cases, um, the, 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 the paedophiles can be extreme, can blend in extremely well and be extremely convincing, extremely difficult to spot. So there doesn't seem to be any uh, set rules about this. So I, I take your point entirely that there's a there's a huge variety. We've covered other forms of a, of abuse that gets into ritualistic and um, satanistic or, or 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 similar forms. Some of it is accessed through what would be termed swinging swinger clubs um, and sexualized parties that don't necessarily focus exclusively or even mainly or even initially on children and and there's a there's a route in there so there seems to be a whole a whole variety of ways that people end up abusing children there doesn't seem to be one route and uh, this comes down to how we as a society understand what sexuality is how we understand what desire is how we how we put limitations on that in every day in everyday situations one of the principles that seems to have been conceded is that up to a certain point or up to a certain age there are no longer any limitations that are really valid um, for example um, adultery uh, uh, the breaking up of marriage having having a, a, a series of sexual partners, having a vast variety of sexual partners, all of these things are now into the realm of choice. They're not into the realm of something that society as a whole needs to control because otherwise the effects are very destructive. That seems to somewhere in the 1960s have been, has been conceded. We're talking about forming a view a society-wide view, a society-wide understanding that will protect children. 
and protect children from aggressive um, sexualized interest by adults. But at the same time, the society is taking sexualized, ag aggressive sexualized interest by adults and normalizing it and celebrating it and and saying that there can be no boundaries placed on it because that would be prudish or unfair or bigoted or whatever. So all of that must be accepted. And then at some arbitrary age, it, everything changes. That seems to be unlikely to succeed because what we're saying is we cannot have a discussion about the limits that should be placed on sexuality in any other area of our lives. Um, and everything goes, and then all of a sudden everything doesn't go. There's then that one line, we almost got one line of defense rather than many lines of defense, rather than having a society that has mature, mature sexual relationships as, a, as an outcome of a whole series of, of, of traditions, of understandings, of protections within the family, within broader society. Um, all of that's been all of that's been eroded away. We've now just got some some somewhat arbitrary line drawn that says on that side of the line, um, uh, with the exception of the academic world, um, it, it's that it's wrong, it's bad, and this side of the line, anything goes. Mm -hmm. That seems to put an awful lot of an awful lot of emphasis, an awful lot of strain on that one remaining barrier. And of course, the way that the academic world will do is they'll pick the marginal cases and they'll try to erode the line just little by little, and it'll be moved back and the, the, the children will be at ever greater risk because you can't, you cannot address the sort of scope and range of problem that you've described just by um, a single law or a single intervention or a single set of rules. It won't take the strain. Um, so what we have to do is have a much more mature discussion about sexuality and the risks associated with it for society as a whole and for the individual. And that has to become part of the dialogue again rather than, um, so we say, the falseness that we currently have. Do you, do you think there's, a, there's an element of, of, of that in it, that society's um, problems with sex are now being, being manifested onto the children? Absolutely, absolutely. And I totally agree with your point about this idea of the one thin line I think that that's a very key point that you've brought out there, you know, that there aren't many, many supporting frameworks. So There's just this one thin line. And, and as you say, it can be pushed back against all the time. And I'm thinking about what it's like to be a child growing up now in this culture. And some of the pressures that are on our children. So for example, one of the things we haven't mentioned is in, um, in schools generally, there's such high levels now of 
sexual assault and sexual harassment, typically by boys of girls, that Ofcom has actually, in 2021, they actually said that it is now normalised to have sexual violence, essentially. So girls are experiencing, growing up experiencing sexual, sexual violence, sexual assault, sexual harassment on a routine daily basis in schools. And yet when that's not being discussed, we're not talking about that. And what the girls are instead hearing is that it's that the important thing is about trans rights, for example, you know, and that if you misgender or if you dead name somebody, that is violence. Whereas what they're actually experiencing in their daily lives is not being discussed openly. I mean, I can really understand why girls are deciding to transition to young men in many ways because it's pretty unpleasant being a girl in this society. So you've got that as a, as a form of pressure on the girls. You've also got obviously what we had with um, COVID and the lockdowns and the masking and you're going to kill granny, you know, and all of that pressure that was on children and the mental health problems that have come out of all of that. Children are extremely anxious as well about climate change. They feel that they are perhaps the last generation that is going to grow up in a, in a world that still functions. We're also looking at the pressures that are, on, that are on children from the recession that's coming and the, level, the increasing levels of poverty and unemployment. So you've got all of that pressure for the children. And then when they go online, they're getting uh, sexual harassment online, on social media as well, for example. They're also getting exposed to pornography. There's a particular form of pornography that I wanted to mention that we haven't talked about yet, which is to do with anime, which is the Japanese cartoon drawings. Um, and there's, there's two particular forms of that called Lolly and Shota, which are from Lollicon Complex and Shotacon, um, which are to do with highly sexualized images of small girls and small boys, respectively. Um, and that is one way that children are actually being groomed into thinking that sexual contact with adults is acceptable and normal because they're seeing these sexualized images of the lolly and the shota. And it, and when you add all of that in with this comprehensive sex education, which is coming in from SICUS. And I just want to, SICUS is Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. That's what SICUS is. Um, and they have their links with, uh, as I said, the uh, researchers coming out of uh, the Kinsey um, research group and so on. So you've got children who are being exposed to those kinds of messages. And I, and I worry that the children growing up now, and if this comprehensive sex education becomes widespread in schools, the next generation of children growing up are going to grow up thinking that paedophilia is essentially normal, sex with animals is essentially normal. I think we, I mean, I was saying to you about, like you were saying, moral agency and uh, wanting people to come forward 
voluntarily and asking for help if they have uh, troubled thoughts around children. We may, it may be too late almost. You know, we may have moved past that as a possibility. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, there are certainly young men out there who are sexually attracted to children and who are making moral decisions. You know, so, so we, that is a source of hope for me, that we do have some men. But I take your point that as a society, we are making it more and more complex and difficult and, and, and um, yeah, just, just really disturbing for children to understand what sexuality is and how does a person behave sexually. I mean, there's a, there's a rising movement, I don't know if you've come across it, of young people who define themselves as ace, which is asexual. They've just given up on the whole jolly lot. So their they would say to you, their sexual identity now is asexual. And I think that that is because they've just been exposed to so much stuff on the internet and so on, which is, which is really, really disturbing for them. And they, and they you know, are no longer sure what good sex would even look like. And the other thing I just wanted to mention, um, because we talked, you, you mentioned uh, Drag Queen Story Hour, for example. And I've been trying to kind of work out in my head, what's the relationship between this drag queen movement and the trans movement and the pressure uh, to ban con conversion therapy um, and, and, and the um, sex education, so you know, what are all of those things about? What's happening there? And I think it's really about when you confuse and disorient people, you do break down their categories, their moral categories. They no longer know what's, what's right, what's not right. And it isn't just drag, adult drag queens, by the way. Um, I don't know if you remember, there's a little boy called Desmond is Amazing, who started as a drag queen, uh, a drag princess, I think he was called, when, when he was about eight, um, and uh, became very popular when he was sort of 10, 11. And um, I, on, on, um, certainly on one paedophile site that I went on, you know, they were saying, wow, he really is amazing. He's so hot, he's so sexy. I mean, they certainly got it that that, that that was what the message was that was being presented, was that this little boy was, was uh, sexually arousing to the viewers. Um, so it's, again, it's about, as you say, breaking down those barriers, breaking down those boundaries about what's normal, what's okay, what's not okay, you, you know, and yeah, and so what would ordinary normal sex look like? I mean, children, as we know, are, are very much selecting their sexualities from the LGBTQ plus, LGBTQ plus um, sort of um, spread of, of, of possible sexualities and possible identities and heterosexuality is not really featuring in that very much neither is lesbianism so girls who might previously have self-identified as lesbian are now self-identifying as trans men 
which I think again is is very disturbing. Because most of the activists, well, when you think about it, most of the activists are trans women. The very, very vocal activists, aren't they? They're trans women. But the majority of people going through the clinics are girls who are transitioning to be what they would see as trans men. Yes, and this, this is an example of something going extremely wrong because we never saw this before. Um, this late onset dysphoria uh, affecting girls, it was just unknown. So this is not something that is hardwired into them. This is not something that they were born with. This is something that is behavioural and is coming from the nature of the society in which they're growing up. It cannot be anything else. And uh, as I look at this, we're making it ever harder for our children to transition to a stable, happy adulthood. And um, the barriers that have been put in their, in their way are ever more complex and ever more dangerous. Um, I, I want to thank you very much, Sarah, for talking uh, about these things today. We, we have to stop now. We could probably talk all day on these matters. Um, and perhaps we can come back at, at, at some some point in a few months hence and, and actually pick this conversation up again. Um, I, I think it's vital. Um, I hope people watching will have got something from this and, and will be able to think, uh, use the information here to research and to think about the issues and, and to realise that it's more complex than the, the simplistic um, uh, ideas that are that are put forward, and to realise that uh, it's it's a society wide problem, and it's one we should all be addressing. Uh, but until next time, uh, Sarah Good, thank you very much.